prior to becoming a pastor, I was a missionary to teenagers for 20 years. <laughs> we did a campus ministry called, uh, an organization called Youth for Christ that did a campus ministry called Campus Life. Those of you at Wesley Foundation, similar kind of thing. It was for middle school and high schoolers, though. And the primary difference between maybe some of our campus ministries and the way they were structured was this ministry was targeted toward unchurched students. Students who did not know God, who went to public school, who did whatever they felt like, were not part of the church. It was not a Bible study. People used to ask me what it was. We called it Campus Life. I said, we're real creative with the name. It's about your life on campus. That's why we call it Campus Life. <laughs> you know, real deep thought into that naming branding plan right there. But we would go to a public school and we would offer this club called Campus Life and we would talk about dating and peer pressure and all types of topics that students would actually want to talk about and we would discuss it from a Christian perspective. And the goal was to build a relationship with these students who were not in church. And what we used to say is to earn the right to be heard about spiritual matters. And so the strategy was to build these relationships with unchristian kids and introduce them to Jesus, missionary to teenagers. And the club meetings themselves did not look like a Bible study. They did not look like a church service. We used secular music. The main way we got them there is we ordered pizza. Let's just be honest. You know, a couple of pizzas in a classroom instead of the cafeteria and some freedom and some games and some giveaways, especially the free food. Lots and lots of kids involved in that that may never, ever come to church. The strategy was to go to where the students are because we assumed they would not come check out the church thing because it's a church thing. In fact, Youth for Christ was the name of the organization and the club was called Campus Life, not Youth for Christ because the assumption is if Christ is in the name, they wouldn't attend. Now, that did not mean we were embarrassed about Jesus or any of that. It was geared to make them feel at home in the midst of those conversations. And so the reason for the secular music is like, oh, I've heard that song before. Of course, it was, it was not like just anything on the radio. It was, you know, but it was the familiar music, familiar environment, free food to captivate their attention. An excuse, if you will. Also means when I walk through a middle school lunchroom promoting campus life, I'm not some weird old dude walking through a middle school campus. You know what I mean? I was the campus life guy. I was there for a reason, and they knew me that way. I'd see him in town at Walmart. That's the campus life guy. You know, that kind of thing. And so we'd build these relationships, and we'd go pursue these kids and see them start to figure out, wait, God has something to say about dating, which he does. Wait, God has something to say about my family of origin. He definitely does. That kind of thing. And so when, they would, when the spiritual questions would finally come up, guess who they go talk to? The campus life guy. In fact, there was one, Christian, there was one girl that um, I probably shared some of her story in the past. She was a devout, self-professed atheist. Not just not in church. She would profess that God doesn't believe, doesn't exist. She would profess that God doesn't exist. And she, so she's in our campus life club. And the primary reason she was there is I invited her to give that position. We had a debate at Campus Life about the existence of God. And she was better at defending the Bible than the Christians sitting in the room. And her comment, I'll never forget this, she goes two things. One, she goes, of course I would be familiar with the Bible if I'm a Christian. Why wouldn't you be? 
I'm like, I would study it. If that's what I profess to believe, I would want to know it. And she knew about enough about it because she knew enough to go, that's not for me at that point in her life. And so we had ongoing dialogue over the course of a semester, and I wish it was one of those miraculous conversion stories, but it's not. But she definitely made a progression in her faith from being devout atheist to going, I don't know, maybe he does exist, I just don't know for sure. But she used to tell me, Charlie, you're not a crazy Christian. And what she meant was, I didn't come at her going, you're going to hell because you don't believe in God. I came to her with a curious understanding of where she was coming from. Tell me more. Tell me more. And I firmly believe she had rejected the church, not Jesus. And so we had these ongoing dialogues, and I saw her progress. Now, I'm going to get on a soapbox here for a minute, and I'm going to confess that I am equally guilty of this soapbox that I'm about to preach against, okay? So just bear with me. I am preaching to myself as much as I am to you. We tend to limit our thinking about ministry of the church to the four walls of the building. How can we get people to church? How can we get people to the latest church thing? How can we get more people to Bible study, to Sunday school, to worship? And we think that is the extent of our ministry goal. Just get more people here. We'll grow our church. We expect those to enter this building to understand everything we're talking about. If you've never been to church before in your life, how much would you understand when it happens in front of you on stage on a Sunday morning? We just assume, oh, they'll get it. They understand. We expect the outside world, fresh off the street, to act and look just like us. Clean your language up, clean your clothes up, clean your appearance up, come to church. It'll be great. Now, I'm guilty of thinking those things through, through, that way too sometimes. I get it. I mean, I'm a pastor. Of course I want lots of people in here, right? As if that's discipleship. We tend to limit our thinking to say we're only reaching who's here. What if we were going to where people are and creating relationships with people in the world that they live in and the life they're living, the schools they're at, the jobs they're at, the job you're at sitting next to them? And that was the scope of our ministry instead of who's coming to the building. Well, Paul, and I'm just as guilty of that. I, I like, I don't know, we're going to have church again. It's great. Great ministry. It's growing. Dude, we need to be out there, and we're going to talk about it, because Paul was a pretty expert guy at this. One, he planted a number of churches. But this guy would walk into random cities, into random locations, and just start talking to them about Jesus and preaching about Jesus and starting a church. Hey, we're going to start a church. Y'all, okay. You know, they didn't know what they were signing on for. But he was an expert in knowing who he was talking to and looking at who he's talking to and helping them understand. And this story in Acts 17 is a fairly famous story because I just said this ministry, right, does start here. We come to worship. Why? Because it grounds us in who we are so that we can be out there. You know, a lot of times Christians go, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. True. But the longer you're separated from the body, how are you going to grow? Where are you going to get the fuel for the conversations that you're going to have? Where are you going to, who are you going to turn to when you're completely disconnected from everybody? Yes, you can have faith in Christ. But the gathered assembly, it starts with us, but it's not limited to us. So Paul, in Acts 17, is doing his thing again where he walks into a community, in this case, Athens. And let's read the story, and then we'll kind of break it down. 
While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, waiting for some friends, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. Some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. That was because he was telling them the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. I think that's how you say that word. And asked him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? It sounds rather strange to us, so we would like to know what it means. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. Then Paul said, stood in front of the Areopagus and said to the Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, that this I proclaim to you, the God who, is, who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself, himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor he made all the nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live, so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for Him and find Him. Though indeed He was not far from each of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. And even some of your own poets have said, For we too are His offspring." Since we are God's offspring, we ought to think that the deity is like gold. We ought not to think. <laughs> Oops. We ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance by to all by raising him from the dead. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed, others said, we will hear more about what you have to say. And at that point, Paul left them, and some of them joined him, became believers, including Dionysus, Arabagite, read Bible names, they're fun, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Okay, those Bible names at the end almost killed me, but you got it. So, Paul walks into the city of Athens, a major cultural center, a big deal, kind of a New York City of the ancient world, where people go and buy and sell and trade. And he walks around for a while before he starts his presentation, and he notices that there are idols everywhere, statues to different deities everywhere. And the Bible says he is distressed by this. This doesn't just mean like, I'm so stressed out that they don't worship Jesus. This means, the word really means reviled or despised the fact they're all worshiping somebody else. He was revulsed by the, the rampant idolatry in the town. He had a problem with it. <laughs> he was offended by it. He was tore up about it. 
And he goes to the synagogue. Did you notice that in the first couple of verses? He goes to the synagogue. That would be the Jewish assembly. So he starts with the church, with the believers, at least in the God of the Bible at first, and preaches to them, but is also preaching in the marketplace to whoever might hear him. And while he's doing that, it says some Epicureans and some Stoics debated him. We're in Athens. We're in Greece. The, the founders of logic, the people who were the, the philosophers you all had to study in high school, these guys are where they were from, right? Epicurus said things like this. God's too far removed. I have nothing to fear from God, nothing to feel in death. Pleasure can be found and evil or pain can be endured. That's Epicurus. God's somewhere out there. He's too far away to matter, so I'm not worried about him. After I die, I don't care. That's Epicurus. That's, who they're debate, that's who's debating Paul about this unknown God. The Stoics were the opposite. They were pantheistic. They believed there was God in this table right here. <laughs> God's everywhere. He's a spirit. He moves and he's around us and he's in this microphone stand and he's in this wooden cross. And <laughs> about as far away from Epicurus as you can possibly be. God's out there. We don't know. We don't worry about it. No, he's like right here. He's here. He's here. That's the Stoics. They were just like mystic about it. They were just like, I don't know. It's just everywhere. We just trust that God's out there. Like that's who's debating Paul. They call him a babbler. Basically, they're going, <laughs> what's this babbler talking about? What's he talking about? This makes no sense. I don't know what he's saying. Don't care. Don't understand. Don't get it. Whatever. In fact, they call him a messenger, not a teacher. It's almost a put down. Like, he's clearly bringing somebody else's stuff. He's not really a teacher. I mean, these people majored on teaching, majored on teachers. There's a verse in here that says, they sat around eager to listen to something new. Who's got the latest philosophy that we're going to listen to and talk about? Who's got the latest new theory about the existence of the world? You know, like, wait, tell me more. I want to hear new stuff. You're not really a teacher. You're just a babbler. So they're dismissing Paul, especially when he starts talking about the resurrection, because the Greeks didn't believe in resurrection. They believed that when you went to Hades, that was it. End of story. And so as soon as Paul starts talking about resurrection, pff, dismissed. But they're so curious about whatever it is he has to say. He says, we're going to take you over to this Aeropagus. I think that's how you say the thing, right? What that was, most likely was, was this center of all of their great thinking exercises that they do, where there was a council who decided who could teach and be a teacher, and who was just like to be dismissed. So there's a council of philosophers that were like, we want to hear what you have to say. And that's the picture here, right? So they bring Paul in front of this group. He's not arrested, but he's almost like auditioning to be a teacher in Athens, if you will. They want to hear what he has to say. Jump back to verse 20, I think, is where we're going to be. Right before he starts his speech in 22. So they, 19. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and asked him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? Now, the people who've been debating him had already heard it. So he's obviously, they're obviously bringing him to somebody to hear what he had to say. They're like, we don't know what he's talking about, so we're going to take him to the council and let them figure it out. It sounds rather strange to us, so we would like to know all that it means. And then the writer Luke of Acts says, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. I mean, after all, they didn't have Netflix, right? So uh, you're bored on Friday night. What do you do? Let's go down to the Arapagus and see what the philosophers are talking about. 
How's that for entertainment? Tell us, Paul, tell us what's going on. Uh, if you've been following along with us I and mean, reading our journal that we're reading, the daily reading for Lent, there's a line in there. Um, it says this, looking for living water in empty wells. That's what the Athenians are doing. They're looking for meaning in the latest philosophy, the latest approach, the latest thing. Looking for living water in empty wells. Verse 22, Paul makes his speech. Paul, in front of the Areopagus, said to the Athenians, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship. I found among them with an, an altar with an inscription to an unknown God. What therefore is unknown to you, this I proclaim to you. Now this is kind of brilliant on Paul's part. The Athenians are so worried about making sure they have all the philosophical viewpoints of the world, all the religious viewpoints of the world, that just in case they forgot one, they made an altar to the unknown God. Just in case we missed one in our list of something new. We got one over here for the one we hadn't met yet. <laughs> and Paul starts his speech. He doesn't start his speech with, you're going to hell. You don't know Jesus. That's not how he starts the speech. He says, I've been walking around and I noticed how extremely religious you are. He starts with a compliment. He's complimenting the Athenians on their vast search for God. You're extremely religious. You're so religious, you have this altar over here to the unknown God. Let me tell you about him. What has he just done? He's taken their passion, he's taken their desire, he's taken the system that they're used to and introduced Jesus through it instead of condemning it. He didn't come in and go, all these idols, they're false, you need to hear about the real Jesus. He says, I love how extremely spiritual you are and how you're obviously pursuing, after, pursuing God, pursuing him so much that just in case you missed it, you've got this one. Well, let me tell you about the one you hadn't found yet. the maker of heaven and earth, the one who brought everybody into being through Adam. He didn't specifically say Adam, but from one man in the speech, right? He says, the one, the God who has made everything else and brought all of us forward from one person who is right to judge everything and sit over everything as he's made everything. In him, we move and have our being. Paul didn't make that phrase up. That phrase was one of their own general understandings of philosophy. In the existence of God, we have, we move and have, and have our being. That was a common understanding. And he takes it a step further in verse 28. As soon as I find verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being. Even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. He's quoting a Greek poet named Erastus in the Bible. Not only has he identified this idol among all their idols and complimented them for a spiritual pursuit, he's quoted their own philosophy to them, and he's quoted their own poet to them to make his point. What is he doing? He's basically speaking to these Athenians who don't know God in a way that they would understand in an environment that they're familiar with and comfortable with. He's taking 
what is their system and introducing them to Jesus in it, not bashing and destroying their system. Do you get the difference? Hey, you need Jesus. Dude, I notice you really like this kind of music. What is that song about? Let's talk about that. Let me quote your own musicians, your own poets, your own worship things that you care about the most. By the way, in the Bible, when it talks about idols, especially for us, what are we talking about? The things we love more than God, right? In this case, they don't even know who God the Bible is. They're just, hey, he's the unknown God. We'll talk about him later. Or at least we've got an idol to mark him, right? But we're going to worship all these other gods. Maybe the God in this table, if you're stoic, you know, <laughs> whatever. We're going to worship all this other stuff. But we've got to have all of our bases covered. And Paul goes, you're right. You do need to have your bases covered. Let me explain to you what you really need to understand. Let me say it in a way that you really get. Verse 24 to 27, this is the heart of the speech. The God who made every, the world and everything in it, He is the Lord of, Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in shrines made by human hands. Remember, what are they worshiping? They have shrines to everything. Nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor, he made, one ancestor, he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth and allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they will go and where they will live, so that they, they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him. Though indeed, he is not far from each one of us. Now, if you listen to that sermon very closely, what has he done? <clears throat> Epicurus said God's out there so much we can discount him. What does he say at the last verse of 26? God is here. He's obtainable. He's reachable. But if he's not some mysterious, ooh, he's in everything. He made everything. He set the nations in motion. And when they start and when they stop, what is the speech addressing? Epicurus and the Stoics. Using their own poets their own statues, their own stuff. There's a day when a man will judge all that God has, God has appointed. The response to knowing this unknown God is what? To repent. We're way into the story. He doesn't lead with repentance. We're way into, you need to understand this, you need to understand this. And of course, the response to the God who made everything and has set Jesus above everything to judge it is to repent. The message comes later. Now, they get stuck on the whole resurrection thing because Paul says, we know that he's the one that God appointed because he was raised from the dead. And they went, whoa, 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 raised from the dead. Got a problem. <laughs> we don't do that. We don't do the resurrection thing. And so verse 31, you get the responses to the speech. Some dismissed him immediately. Hey, he's talking about resurrection. He's a crackpot. Some said, tell us more, which some of the commentators think that was just polite for they didn't want to like reject him. So they're like, we want, yeah, we'd love to hear more about that sometime. Right? And then some followed him on his missionary journey to hear more. So you have all three responses you think would happen with a sermon. Nope. Eh, maybe I'd like to hear some more. And yes, there's no other option. Right? Rejection, maybe, and yes. To a group of people who had never heard of God before. So I ask you this question. What are some things that we can take from this story? 
right? Because this is a story I have a long time ago. Hey, Paul's a pretty good evangelist. What about for us? We are, and the world certainly is, just like Athens now. People are looking everywhere for living water in empty wells. The city of Starville, the United States, the world, but even our own community is no different than Athens. We have stuff that we love more than God that's not faithful to the Scripture. We're in that world. And that same call is upon us to repent, to lay down idols. We're in the midst of Lent, right? This is when you actually lay down the thing that you let get too important. Chocolate, Facebook, whatever. <laughs> Pursuit of money. Whatever it is that's become an idol to you, it starts with us. Paul said it, but God and his plans cannot be confined by this building. You think God's satisfied with what's just happening in here? You think his whole plan is focused on connection? It's, it cannot be contained by the biggest church built in the United States because it was never intended to be in a particular place, in a particular shrine. And he's over everything. He sets the boundaries of existence. He's beyond all that. And he's invited us to participate in that. Paul did not reject the Athenians' idolatry. He incorporated it into his message. I talked about that. What if our efforts to make disciples and participate in God's kingdom looked more like Paul's work in Athens? What if we imagined the end of the boundaries of the walls? What if instead of being concerned about who's in and who's out, we embodied God's love in front of everyone wherever we go? What if we lived in, what if we imagined that the kingdom is not the church? What if we imagined that the kingdom is everything that God has made? And even people who don't know Jesus may have some connection to the divine they've not tapped into yet like the Athenians. Hey, we know there's this God we hadn't discovered yet, intuitively knew there's God out there, we hadn't figured him out yet. Paul's helping us out, <laughs> right? There are some Christians, there are some non-Christians, like my friend on campus who understood the Bible better than the Christian kids in the debate, who are closer to God than we are. They have a better connection to God than we do, but they don't quite understand who it is they're connected to. If God's not combined, confined to a building, then he's everywhere. And we've said this before. Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our own image. Male and female, we made them. That includes the worst sinner that you know that has never gone to church. The image bearing is not limited to church people. Creation, everyone who's been made, everywhere that you go, whatever you do for a living, Wherever you are, you are in God's presence and you are in God's kingdom. We just need to become aware of it. The best advertisement, and I'm drawing some of this from our journal, the best advertisement God has is our embodiment of God's love. Quote great right from the journal. That maybe the best missional statement, the best incorporation of God and His truth and calling people to repentance is to be loving to the people who don't know the unknown idol yet. When they experience God's love through us, like my friend who said, Charlie, you're not a crazy Christian. 
because I was willing to engage in a conversation and get to know her versus reject her for where she stood. Maybe if we start to embody that love and imagine a kingdom that's boundless, that's not limited to church promotional event, but how we actually live among other people, then maybe that's the best thing we can do. And then finally, maybe we have more in common with them than we realize, because I don't know about you, I'm not perfect. Just because they're not a Christian, they're not perfect. But neither are Christians, and we shouldn't pretend to be. When somebody asks me a spiritual question that I genuinely don't know the answer to, the best answer is, I don't know. (laughs) And I'm the pastor, right? I don't know. Let's figure it out. But the best part about when somebody asks me a question I don't know is the opportunity to dig into an answer together. Maybe they'll even find the answer before I do. I'm cool with that. You can teach me. Versus everything you're doing is wrong. Let me tell you why you need to repent. Here's how you're evil and bad. That's a winning campaign. And do people need to be introduced to that? Paul did, right? What did he say to the Athenians? Hey, I I see how religious and awesome you are. You have all these idols that we established at the beginning was repulsive to him. But he was complimentary. Why? Why? He was seeking common ground with a world that needs to know Jesus. And then demonstrating who God is to them to call them to what? Repentance. Because when we wake up to who God is and what he's done and what we've done in return, the obvious response to that is repentance. It's the next step. When you realize there is a God, and it's not you, (laughs) right? There's a God who made everything. In Him, we move and dwell and have our being. He's provided us with everything. The obvious response is repentance, love, gratitude, and share the truth that the whole world needs to hear. Not just everybody here on Sunday but everyone we come in contact with. The best way to do that is to embody God's love. Let's pray. Gracious God, make us campus missionaries. Make us ambassadors for you. Make us aware of your love in our own life. Make us aware of how close you are to us so that we can demonstrate that love to everyone we come in contact with. Help us to bring your kingdom here to see your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Christ's name.